Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and I can't believe I've been listening to that open for almost 20 years now. I am Ron Kolick, your host, one of the two. The other one, of course, is the gold standard in ghost hunting, Mr. Steve Parson. Good evening. 20 years, huh? Mm. About time you changed it, then. Nah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Oh, well, you, you don't want people copying it. You know, you could get people like other radio stations pinching the idea. Yeah, whatever. It's so amazing. It's not like, you know, this country, we're going to change the state flag now because it offends somebody. So Um, I'm not changing anything. Get over it. There you go. (laughs) What have you you got to change now? What's wrong with the state flag? The state flag has an Indian on it. So that's offending somebody. So whatever. Oh. The latest, I mean, the, absolutely the latest one was probably the worst I, that I think of. How just people have their panties, their panties in a bunch right now. It's it's unbelievable. It is the uh, one of the towns, uh, one of the uh, one of the police officers was killed uh, in the line of duty, and it was his anniversary. So they put up a uh, blue line flags in the back of the uh, fire trucks and. Somebody bitched about it, so Complaint. they have to take the the police flags down off the fire truck because well they're police. busy. Same here, yeah. They're busy taking statues down and boxing them up and covering them over and marching up and down complaining about them. Yeah, whatever. Every you know, hey. I think you know. That, that, we may as well just make the flag white, and then it'll can't offend anyone. Well, no, 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 you can't have it white. Well, we'll have to do it rainbow then. <laughs> the rainbow, I'm sure that'll work. As long as there's a black line in it too, is we'll be all right. Uh, yeah, you but, put a rainbow. I think well, our, our local council buildings and even our government uh, Twitter things are starting to show these damn rainbows everywhere. Mm, good. I mean, nothing against them, but you know, it's like whatever. It's, but you know, I know. It's like somewhere over the Steve rainbow. Steve Morrell looks to be offended by something. It just irritates the crap out of me. You know. Well, you know, we were. I was talking to some guy who's. Uh, John says he's been listening for ten years. Wow, that's pretty good, John. I'm sorry about that, Steve. So I want to give a shout that's out to John, right. who's been listening Go for give ten years. Shout out to John. Actually, yeah. Um, yeah well, just wondering how many years we, you and I have been doing this. It's approaching eight. I was trying to figure it out before the show, but I, I couldn't because it's <laughs> melt. Yeah. About eight or nine years we, you and I have been doing this. But yeah, there was a man who was uh, organizing a protest against this statue. And uh, he made a very good, oh, he was organizing a protest against the protest to get rid mm. of the statue. I made a very good point that, you know, if our history makes us feel uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Because we yep. we can learn from it, you know. We yep. should be uncomfortable, but we shouldn't be afraid of talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there I we know. are. Yeah, we are. I, but I, nowadays, we don't want to offend the snowflakes, do we? 
Uh, whatever. And if you're a snowflake, don't listen to this show tonight. They please. don't. Trust me, they don't. I've been doing We're this too long. probably going to offend you at some point. <laughs> anyway, there's some good news, though. Moving on. Is there? Yeah, Chernobyl. Huh? Chernobyl, you know Chernobyl, right? What, the TV series? No, no, the city. Oh, yeah. You know what happened to Chernobyl, right? I know full well what happened to Chernobyl. So we give, got us a, a, give us the we, lowdown on it. Well, we got a dose of it here in the UK, didn't we? Um, because most of it, when the nuclear reactor, reactor number two at the Chernobyl nuclear plant went into meltdown, did a three-mile island on them. Um, back in, oh God, what was it, 82, 83? Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact year, but back then anyway, back, yeah. back away. Um, point, really. Uh, most of it, yeah, well, a lot of it went east, and we got a face full here in the west. And we, it was only, in fact, the, um, the Welsh sheep and hill farmers, because it rained so heavily in the UK shortly afterwards, um, with a predominantly westerly, uh, easterly airflow, uh, they weren't, they haven't been allowed to sell uh, the lamb and sheep products to market for more than 20 years due to the oh, background wow. radiation. And the, the farms, they still have to do background radiation checks every five minutes. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is during the uh, 60s, of course, uh, they had um, uh, above ground nuclear testing. It wasn't until the, the, they banned that. And we, we actually had strontium 90, 90 in our milk, and uh, it was found in, in other things as well uh, because of the above ground nuclear tests. So uh, it's not new. This stuff's been around for, well, since the nuclear age. <laughs> well, but actually, it, actually, you know, interestingly, um, some of the byproducts, like plutonium, which of course is, uh, is an isotope that shouldn't exist in nature, I was going to say doesn't, um, up until quite recently, um, they believed that uh, fission, nuclear fission, mm-hmm. fusion, fission, um, couldn't exist in nature. But then in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they discovered some isotopes and there was the, the usual, bring on to the paranormal, the usual conspiracy theorists, because what they discovered were isotopes that had only ever been found to exist inside a nuclear reactor and were always believed to have been man-made um, and could not occur in nature until... the aliens, well, probably aliens. Well, that's what, you know, that's what some people said. It was a million-year-old, the remains of a million-year-old nuclear reactor. There you go. Uh, left by alien technology. However, yeah. the geologists persevered and demonstrated that there ain't no such thing as um, the new in nature, and that Mother Nature had, in fact, uh, there had been a spontaneous nuclear uh, event Reaction. caused by the uh, caused by the uh, uranium and the the isotopes that were in the ground. Mm. Um, in sufficient quantity and concentrations, and it caused a spontaneous nuclear reaction. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Anyway, what was the news about Chernobyl, anyway? Oh, yeah, Chernobyl. Of course, you know, Chernobyl, they evacuated the entire city and everything yeah. else. And well, uh, actually, the city was called Pripyat. Whatever. Just yeah. the, the, let the me finish without Chernobyl, correcting me but, for a change, anyway. Okay. But, well, the town, the town that, got, that got evacuated, the one, the famous one, is Pripyat. Okay. So, anyways, uh, 
the what they found is that uh, there is now a lot of first of all the wildlife came back, which is kind of cool in in the forest and everything else, which is awesome. But they also found that uh, this fungus growing everywhere, and upon further investigation, the fungus actually absorbs the radiation. So they're now they're now uh, playing with it to see if they can use it in space. Because one of the big problems in space is radiation. You know, we're not protected by our, our atmosphere. And uh, so, uh, you know, the astronauts are worried about that. So they're thinking they might be able to use this fungus. Uh, you know, they haven't figured out how to apply it, of course, and everything. But to absorb the radiation that's hitting out uh, of spacecraft, space stations, yada, yada. It's kind of cool, huh? That's interesting. Yeah. Said, that reminds me of that. Well, that puts me in mind of another conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> oh, I mean, this, this one touches, touches upon um, your, your younger years um, because it My relates years. directly to the Apollo missions and yeah. the moon landings. And oh, the old argument of we couldn't You're not going to say we didn't. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Van well, Belt. Well, the old the argument being we couldn't get to the moon because the Van Allen belts were right. in the way and would have cooked the astronauts. Yeah. And how did this aluminum, you know, fit, fit, basically aluminum foiled covered craft because the, the thing was so thin and flimsy um, get, get to the moon through the Van that Allen belts without killing the astronauts? Well, the simple answer is it didn't. It never had to. And as NASA said all along, uh, the Van Allen belts are, of course, like donut-shaped. So uh, after the launch, the Apollo just went out and over the top of the donut through the hole. Yeah. It's really quite simple. Um, you can't go through the middle, which is the equatorial band, so, which, mm. is why, um, which is why they didn't do it that way. And they were quite clever back in the 60s. It, actually, that's freaking amazing uh, in the 60s, to be honest with you. And, and that was, well, yeah. It was more like the 70s. So, well, yeah, the, the the launch space launches were really early 70s. That, uh, right? Uh, that's no, I'm getting confused. Oh, 69, the very late one. What? Go ahead. The last, was the the last Apollo? Apollo is uh, well, Apollo one didn't launch. The first Apollo uh, space shot was 68. Then 69 yeah. was yeah. 11, and the yeah. last one was 73. Yeah, so that's the period I was looking at. I just used this, when it sounds sixties, you you it sounded like early sixties to me, but that was just my interpretation well, of what you said. That was Gemini and Mercury, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the early ones, which are pretty crazy shit. To be honest with you, uh, on they that really note, they're all thing in bio, bio, um, boxes. Yeah, Blue, like toy and, and boxes. On that note. They are. They, it won't be long. I forget the date now, of course, but they'll be launching. Uh, you'll be able to be a space tourist. Uh, you can go up, and they'll take you up to the upper uh, ionosphere, and uh, well, you get. It was going to be this. It was going to be this month. Yeah, you it's going to be this month. Yeah, huh. you get to see but space real close. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they've already got 600 people signed up for this little journey. Is that something you'd like to do, by the way? Just curious. Oh, God, absolutely. Is the Pope Catholic? Of course it would. Yeah, yeah I think so, too. Absolutely. Yeah. What's always, what's always um, I, I grew up, you know, I, I was, I'm a, a little younger than you and didn't contribute to Apollo. 
Um, but I was eight years old when Apollo 11 went to the moon. And yeah. I was totally um, from, you know, Apollo 10, 11, 12, etc. Totally, totally absorbed by, in fact, right next to me is um, a large Lego Saturn V rocket. Um, I, as, a, as a kid, I was, I was totally focused on space and Apollo and uh, remember begging to be allowed to stay up late. Because hey, wasn't that cool that you could actually watch it on TV? And we're yeah. talking primitive TV back then, too, well, <laughs> which is amazing in itself. <laughs> well, in the UK, because of the time zone difference, they, they, they touched down. It was quite late in the evening, and I was eight years old. And they were scheduled, if I remember rightly, they were scheduled to have a rest, a crew rest, uh, for about five hours, and then get out and go walk about. But um, all of a sudden, the, uh, the radio messages started to change, and the BBC announced that, they thought they were going to go straight out. You know, they're going to go for it. And I begged and pleaded and howled because I had school the next day as well. Uh, this this little eight-year-old was allowed to stay up to watch Man Set Foot on the Moon. Ah, so cool, huh? How cool was that? Uh, and I still remember it. I still, still you know, still remember um, the the black and white box in the corner room because it was about uh, what, about an eighteen inch television black and white TV yeah and tubes those, go- those ghostly pictures which if tubes. I remember don't rightly, forget the tubes you got to yeah. heat it up <laughs> yeah well uh, if I remember rightly the first pictures until they put the uh, the feed from Australia on were till were th- at ninety degrees so it was actually going horizontal across the screen <laughs> and you all have to sit with your head sort of tilted over to see what was happening. And it was all ghostly and blurry. You know, I mean, look at, look at the 60s. I mean, we had Concord. You know, we were on the verge of... Yeah, Super- Concord was a... Whatever happened? Why did, why did that end up just because of not enough just, ports could take it? Or? Yeah, uh, well, actually, <laughs> the truth is the Americans killed it. Uh-huh. Um, I'll explain it. it. Was, I mean, you can just do it out there. I, so I, 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 sh- I shall. I mean, this is historic. This is historical. It's on the record. It's fact. Okay. Um, I'm not doubting Britain you. And France had built, Britain and France had built the Concorde. America was uh, Boeing was funded uh, to build the 2707, the supersonic yeah. swing wing thing, yeah. uh, and they were having no success. And Boeing, uh, Boeing ultimately petitioned the U.S. government and poured a lot of money into campaigns that pointed out the problems with supersonic, the SSTs, which was the fact that they were noisy. Mm. Uh, and the Green Lobby, which was just developing in the 1960s, oh, God, uh, was... particularly in, the, in America, you know, the, the hippies were, were taking charge. And a lot of money was put into uh, protests uh, surreptitiously by Boeing and mm. by... Um, which ultimately, the, the, as airlines like the, the U.S. airline Braniff were signed up to buy uh, the Concorde. Mm-hmm. Uh, TWA were on the verge of signing for it. Um, there were several other U.S. airlines. Uh, there was one that went to Australia. I can't remember the name. Of it. Oh, it was Pacific Northwest or Northwest Orient. They were going to buy the Concorde. Um, and the order book was good. But then the protest happened. The other countries came on board. Um, you know, there was uh, lobbying going on as well, saying, "Hey, we've got this big fat airliner, the Queen of the Skies, with this big bulge on top, and it's really—and it was. I mean, the Boeing seven four seven is cool." Um, 
but ultimately it killed the Concorde. So uh, the the oh, I can't remember exactly our number were built eight or nine. Really went into service. British Airways five, and the French had four. They maintained them very differently, and then they they would have still been flying today, uh, but for two factors. The first factor being the French crash, uh, which, meant that, which meant that the aircraft had to be uh, partially redesigned. They had to redesign the ceilings on the fuel on the fuel tanks to stop them being penetrated. Uh, but most importantly, the day that the Concorde returned to pre-commercial service was September the 11th, 2001. Oh, God bless. And the aviation market collapsed, and Airbus, who had taken over the contract for servicing and maintenance, had basically said, look, we can't sustain this any longer. We're not going to maintain it. We're not going to make spurs for it. We're not going to uh, service the aircraft any longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virgin Atlantic Airlines actually said to British Airways, um, we'll buy them all off you. And we'll so what happened to them anyways? Uh, do they, are they still Basically, around? They, they, they would have. Uh, they're all in museums. You've got one in New York on okay. the area. Um, and the rest of them are all in British or French museums. No privately owned ones, huh? Uh, British Airways still has one that's still capable, apparently. It's still oh, very well maintained. It's based at Heathrow Airport. Cool. Um, and probably could be capable of flight. That would be awesome. Anyway, you know what's interesting, too, is, is we t- you know, people talk about the, the kickback from the, the Concords and, and all that. But, uh, you know, when jet airliners first came out, there was the same thing. People were, were scared to death of these jet airlines, and, and there were some problems. And rightly so. Um, I mean, I've got to blow the flag a little bit. You got to the moon. We invented the jet trunk and the jet airliner. Um, the, the Havilland Comet, which was the world's first jet airliner in service and in production, um, was fantastic, but had a fatal manufacturing error that wasn't known about or understood about. This was metal fatigue. Yes. And the windows, uh, the cabin windows were square. Um, and that led to areas in the corners where metal fatigue with the constant, because the aircraft could fly higher than most other aircraft. The pressurization system meant right. that it was a greater... Eventually, it failed at the corner of a window uh, or the corner of an aperture. It was actually a radio antenna um, that failed um, and taught the world about metal fatigue. Yes. And, uh, as Boeing said afterwards, thank God you crashed the comet because we had square windows on the Boeing 707. Now... Where was that? Was that the one that was like went to Italy or something? Uh, I the forget. first, there were there was a number. There were there were actually two uh, fatal crashes. A bit like the seven three seven Max. Um, the, the the final uh, the first one was put down to either weather or pilot issues, uh, but then the second one of the comet was its registration was YP, so Yoke Peter Comet Yoke Peter was uh, crashed into the Adriatic after departing Rome on it. Yeah, back. that's the one I was thinking about, yeah. yeah. And um, they they fished it out, um, and then they they got another Comet airframe and put, took it down to the, uh, the Royal Aircraft Establishment, which is the British equivalent of NASA, put it in the big tank of water and pressurized the, 
you know, put through a very stringent series of pressurization tests to simulate flight. And this window blew out in exactly the same way as it had on the um, unfortunate aircraft. And, you know, this is how we, we bemoan um, the accidents. I mean, there was the shuttle, the, the shuttle disasters um, yep. with uh, the launch disaster. With the, I missed the um, shuttles, by the way. Uh, one, one of them was a teacher from New Hampshire, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. The, McAuliffe. Yeah. Chris and McAuliffe was a, yeah. a teacher on the, uh, from New Hampshire. Yeah. And they learned that the, that the, um, the rings on the fire coal boost, the fire coal built boosters, the rubber O rings didn't work in cold weather. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you go away, you redesign it. And I think it was Neil Armstrong who said, uh, we can't, you know, effectively, we can't make an omelette without breaking eggs and accepted that, you know, uh, people were going to die. NASA, unfortunately, lost three in Apollo 1, um, one being Gus Grissom. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Russians, uh, on the very oh, they first... Lost a, they lost a few. <laughs> well, the Russians have only ever lost three in space. Um, well, in fact, on re-entry. Um, and there that was... <laughs> no, that we know. Well, it's more conspiracies, isn't it? That the Russians actually had an astronaut before Yuri Gagarin. Yeah. Um, but he, when the successful, uh, they, uh, the crew, a crew of three had been to, on the first successful visit to Salyut One, which was the space station, the Russian space station. Right. Uh, and on their return, the capsule depressurized. And um, there you go. There you go. They were they they joined the ranks of the many. They they know that when they get into it and, and they're pioneers <laughs> and, and and you know that's that's part of the job, unfortunately. It's like being the in the military and being killed in action. It's you know, it's it's part of the job. It's expected that that could happen. Uh, you sign up, you you know that. Uh uh. So, you know, it's it's terrible and all that. But, you know, and these guys are heroes for being for doing what they do. But uh, it, it's it's expected. You, you know, it, it is uh, acceptable, I guess, is the word. I mean, you never want to lose a life, but it unfortunately is an acceptable risk if you're going to do something that's never been done before. Yeah, I mean, test pilots, you know, even today, um, you know, when they a lot of it's now done with computers, but. The man that has to fly that first uh, the aeroplane off the ground for the first time, or you know, back in the fifties and the sixties, uh, over at Edwards Air Force Base in California, you know, these oh. guys, the, the test pilots, are very famous. I mean, I'm, they were household names. You know, oh yeah, they were romantic. Um, you know, these these were the guys who who meant that you and I, or me in particular, can zoom across the Atlantic sipping a gin and tonic. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, you know, in, in, in pretty well com near complete safety, you know, the chances of anything untoward happening while sipping a gin and tonic flying the Atlantic are a lot less than being picked up from Logan Airport and being driven up, up to uh, further up the coast by you. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very true. You know, by, I mean, but that's, a, that's an <laughs> all aspects of, of you know advancing and thing. I mean, we you had that uh, Scottish. A uh, guy on the boat there. Uh, what the heck's his name? He 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 died in the lock, right? Didn't he? 
Uh, oh, the, 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 the speed guy. Yeah, what the heck was his name? Yeah. Oh, the water speed record. Um, yeah, the water speed. It was on a lock, though, wasn't it? It was on Loch Ness. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I can't remember the name of the... But there's a memorial. I can see it now. I can see the memorial as well. Um, Just see, can you of, see the name on the memorial? Come on, Dave. Unfortunately not. <laughs> too far back. Get your third eye going. Uh, Take a look. You know, <laughs> it would be quicker. Why don't you just Google it? I know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, there is a memorial there because they were using Loch Ness, which is um, 23 miles long, because he was going to set a jet, uh, a water speed record with a jet-powered yeah. boat. And um, like um, his successor, um, Campbell. Was it Stuart? Stuart? No, well, you've got Donald Campbell, who died on Loch. Yes, uh, Campbell. That's uh, the one. Yeah, Campbell. I know it was yeah, some no, no, there's, there's been two. Um, you've got the guy at Loch Ness in 1950-something. Yeah. That's the one I was and thinking. And then 1968-7 was Donald Campbell um, in Bluebird. Yeah. Um, and that, they, they, never, they, they didn't find his body. For a very long time, um, the only thing that of his that surfaced was his crash helmet and Mr. Whoppity. And Mr. Whoppity was the lucky teddy bear he carried from his father, Sir Malcolm Campbell, who had held both the land and water speed records previously to Don, uh, mm. to Don Campbell. Um, now, for many years, and I met his daughter, Gina Campbell, because she used to race um, high speed speedboats, racing speedboats. And she always carried Mr. Whoppity, which was her father's rabbit. Still around? Uh, she is. She's still around. Well, now, Mr. Whoppity's uh, still around. Oh, God, yeah, Mr. Whoppity's still around. Um, yeah. Now, um, uh, a few years ago, I think maybe eight or nine years ago, possibly within a year or so, they found the, um, the Bluebird. Yes. And they yes, I was going to mention They recovered that. it. I didn't want to cut and it. not just recovered it, rebuilt it, and made it go, made it work. Um, oh, wow. And they were going to, but there's a bit of a legal problem between the Campbell family and the the engineers that have been working on Bluebird, uh, which is why. But it's 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 been rebuilt, and they found Donald Campbell. Excellent. Well, they found his remains anyway. Yeah. Was there any teeth from like a monster bitten into it or something? Uh, no teeth marks on the boat either. Not that I'm aware of. No, he hit his own wake because he turned around to suddenly at the other end, came back and hit his own uh, wake. Sure it wasn't a wake from the the monster. Nope. The monster. No. But, sure. but the, the earlier I've heard, I've heard stories. I've heard so stories. Two of them mixed up. The <laughs> the Loch Ness crash was attributed, and I'll find out the name before we come back. Yeah, and we got to take a break, anyways. Now, so, anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International, the first of two hours of Ghost Chronicles Radio with uh, Ron Kolick and Steve Parson, right here on Toad United Pararex Radio, brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrick Street, Methuen, Massachusetts, and the Galant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover. We'll be right back. Welcome to Tokinet, 
Radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Deranged. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous. As we give awards to the Bear Eggs family. generation and um, we, we we left before the break uh, getting two uh, high-speed boat crashes confused the first being uh, the 1952 crash on Loch Ness which killed the um, it, its pilot driver John Cobb and the boat was called Crusader um, it's a jet-powered boat 31 feet long and uh, it it ended up now, interestingly, um, I'm sorry, fired up Crusader's engine soon exceeding 200 miles an hour, always going well until he ran into some sort of small swells. Yes. Some people have attributed to Nessie. The monster. The swells yes. made the surface of the front of Crusader oscillate up and down until the bow finally dipped below the surface. The acceleration was so sudden and fierce that the boat instantly disintegrated. Cobb died instantly and his body was recovered of the boat, nothing but matchwood. So they thought, until September 2019, when uh, state-of-the-art sonar technology being employed on Loch Ness, part funded by the National Geographic channel to to look for the Loch Ness monster, uh, um, (laughs) using, using sonar... Uh, an unmanned vehicle with revolutionary multi-beam sonar found the boat and filmed it under over 600 feet of water. Mm. Um, The researchers, it was a culmination of years of probing. We suddenly saw the wreckage and it is vastly more intact than anyone thought. Because of the severity of the crash, we'd expected there to be a much wider debris field. There are no plans to raise Crusader but we have notified Historic Environment Scotland, and it is now under their protection. Protection, yeah. Uh, Cobb, um, the guy who was killed, who was a fur broker from London, so presumably was out there in the Northwest Territory shooting muskrats the rest of the year, 
uh, held the land speed record of 394 miles an hour set on the Utah Salt Flats and wanted to become the fastest human on water. He arrived in Scotland, won over the locals by refusing to practice on Sundays. Um, he was trying to better the, the record of 178.4 held by an American and recorded 206 miles an hour on the first run up the lock, but shortly beyond the mile marker where he should have turned round uh, for the second run, Crusader's nose dug in and it broke up. Oh. There we are. So there you go. Now we've clarified that little mystery. Yes, we did. So, intriguing. <sighs> Someday I'll get to the lock. all about it. Clarifying mysteries and solving mysteries. And, it is. It is. You know, that was... People um, always... Somebody was having to go over the other day and said, oh, you're old. Yeah, yeah but I lived through the 60s and uh, the 70s when things were... You know, all of the great inventions that we use today, hybrid cars and high-speed aeroplanes and the internet and computers, they're all of our generation. It was, Absolutely. you know, it, it was it was a good time. It is a good time to be alive. One thing Unless I did you're want a to high mention, speed record freak. I make I make fun of uh, tree huggers sometimes, but I, I do have to admit that uh, while I was in college, I was the campus coordinator for the first Earth Day on uh, in 1970. In fact, I attended the. Uh, the first Earth Day Symposium at Harvard University for all the campus coordinators. So, yeah, back then I was a hippie too, I guess. Conservative hippie, I would say. <laughs> if the I remember, I remember, we, I remember um, flat trousers. <laughs> oh, I had the bell bottoms. Yeah. They, they could, I'll tell you what, if you started running, you could whip yourself to death. I hated those. Whatever. And there's a... Uh, I don't think we're allowed to say what they were called, uh, but we had those, those Jeep V collars that went, you know, all the way down, and mm -hmm. uh, we had a particular name for them. But I don't know. And Ben Sherman shirts mm -hmm. with that crease down the back, pleat down the back. Mm. Yeah. So, but well, what was also you, interesting, and it, when, when, well, I can want to add one. You mentioned fashion, so I've got to add a note there. Uh, in high school, we used to have these shirt. We wore madras which is a, another whole thing. But uh, it was like a plaid plaid fabric, basically. But we used to have these things called, we called them Fruit Loops. And basically, they were these little loops in the back, on your back, around the shoulders. And so you would uh, you would uh, go collecting those. You would <laughs> rip them off people's shirts. <laughs> and they were just, just pieces of cloth. Yeah. So, yeah. Moving right along. <laughs> yeah, moving right along. Because you've also, I mean, the 60s was also the era of some of the most uh, notable ghost, ghost hunters. Um, you know, we all, we, oh, we oh, talk oh, about wait, before I forget, uh, I have to ask you about this. I'm, I'm extremely sorry for interrupting, but uh, I was coming through my channels, uh, I think Tubi or Tubby or whatever it is, and I found Harry Price Mystery. Uh -huh. It's a movie. Harry Price, the ghost hunter. Oh, there's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, a, yeah. A member of Parliament's 
yeah. wife is found naked and someplace yeah. and and he yeah. invests is it any good am i worth worth my no. watching oh no avoid 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 good i'll um, watch it then <laughs> uh, no um they they portrayed harry as a as a failed psychic who would uh, who would um turn to um fleecing members of the public out of money really i'll have to see this now yeah uh, okay. it's, uh, it's dreadful. The only similarity to Harry Price, of course, is the name. It's a bit yeah. like Braveheart and the Patriot. And, I was just uh, shocked. I came across it. I had never yeah. even heard of it before. It's like, whoa, thing. what's this? Harry Price, awful, cool. Awful, awful bloody thing. Yeah. Um, uh, is there a good movie on Harry Price? Unfortunately not. He's never really... Um, he's never really I don't know. Is there anything? He, well, only by us. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, some of the ghost, uh, some of the ghost hunt uh, movies uh, have borrowed from characters, but they've used, they've tended, most of them haven't used Harry Price, um, probably because he was a bit too sensible. Uh, but they have used Elliot O'Donnell and Hubert Thurston and Peter Underwood, and you know they've all contributed. Andrew Green was another one who contributed. What was the one that uh, they, they was a little while ago? It was uh, Houdini and Doyle. Doyle, that's who it was. Yeah, Houdini and Doyle. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, all right. I'm sorry. I'm just digressing all over the no, place. No, well, I mean, Doyle was uh, literally away with the fairies. Well, he was away, yeah. Um, Sir Arthur was a notorious spiritualist and um, advocate for spiritualism. And his wife, of course, was um, a notorious psychic and medium, which yeah. may have influenced Sir Arthur. Now, I... I it's actually untrue. A lot of it, a lot of the mystique of Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has has grown up a bit like around Harry Price as well. In yeah. that, you know, Sir Arthur was uh, the great man who wrote um, Sherlock Holmes, and uh, was then suddenly duped by all of these wacko psychics into believing into. But in actual fact, when you when you study and look at his work, um, he wasn't. He wasn't really that much of a dupe. Um, and he, he was really quite critical. And people always point at the fairies, and I've joked about before about being away with the fairies, because he was involved in the, in the notorious Cottingley fairies case, yep. um, which, which he did eventually come towards believing the girls' stories, or at least some of the, some of the girls' accounts. Um, but he was very slow and very reluctant to throw his lot in. He, he sent up a, theo, a, theolo, a theosophist, a member of the Theosophical Society. Oh, Society. Society. Yeah. yeah, because Sir Arthur was, was when the story first broke. Sir Arthur was on the on the point of leaving for um, a tour of Australia with his wife, mm-hmm. and so he sent this guy up there. This guy comes back and said, um, "Seems seems kosher." Um, so they arranged for the girls to be given cameras um, so they could go out and take more pictures and the girls duly obliged and uh, he had the photographs very carefully looked at you know, it wasn't Sir Arthur that went yep they're fairies no the they pictures, were actually yeah they were sent to Kodak um, yeah. you know to, to verify to, to them is not doctored right exactly yeah. um, so you know based upon based upon quite a a detailed examination of the evidence, he came to the conclusion that 
there was something in this. Uh, plus, of course, you know, he wanted to tell the story. He, he was writing for, um, he was editing and publishing a magazine, a monthly magazine, which they always had a Christmas ghost story or a Christmas story attached to it. And he was quite keen to get this fairy story into it because it was a good read. Um, but it, it, he wasn't quite as gullible as people in later make him out to be. Right. But, you know, history has a, has a habit of um, not representing the historical facts accurately. No, no. And we all know how dangerous that can be. Yes, we do. Anyways. So, I think, I mean, we, we, we looked at a lot of different things and and. Now, speaking about uh, Houdini, you know that Houdini tried, uh, in fact, he held one a flight racket at one time? Um, yes. When I did that talk on Houdini, um, we, we did mention the fact that he'd been involved um, with flying and flying records. And that was one of his. I remember what it was. I know something to do with Australia, something is. I know it had something to do with Australia, but I can't remember for the life of me right now what it was. But yeah, he was involved in details, but he did. He, he, he was a record breaking aviator. Or, yeah. You know, That's quite the man. Of the time. Yeah, see, well, another conspiracy theory. See, they found Amelia Earhart. Yeah, supposedly. Well, they've done. They've. They've reevaluated the case again, haven't they? There's a, it's an American It's been reevaluated about 6,000 times. Yeah, but, but this they have uh, the no American body. Corporation, no, they have no body. But they have no body from lots of cases that they know how, who did it. Yeah, right. Um, well, there's an American corporation called Tiger, which is mm. T I G H A R or something, yeah. which stands for. Uh, but over here, just down the road from, from uh, where I live in West Wales, there's a memorial mm. and a monument to Amelia Earhart. Um, mm. Because I live about 20 miles from Pembrey Airfield in Carmarthenshire, which was uh, where she landed after one of her transatlantic flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of her, uh, with, uh, I think it was the one, it wasn't the, f- or was it the flight? I think it might have been the round the world flight. Anyway, there's a memorial um, in just down, uh, about 20 miles down the road at Pembrey Airfield um, to to Earhart. But they, I mean, they, this that's another one. It's it's based in conspiracies. The farther you get, you get away from it, too, the more conspiracies come out, and the more they say, "Oh, we got proof of them." Unless they really don't. They, you know, I mean, they, they've had pictures surface saying, oh, this is her at a Japanese fishing village. This is after the supposed crash. And, you know, she was alive, blah, blah, blah. And then they, this and that. I mean, it's it's all conjecture, to be honest. It's well, let it I mean, rest. Tiger or the analysts are completely convinced, 100% sure, that a piece of metal that they recovered on Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. Island yeah. um, is, is actually from the Electra because mm-hmm. they matched it to uh, a repair that was done on the Electra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they've certainly found some wreckage, and that's a bit like yeah. MH370, isn't it? They found they found a piece of MH370, the Boeing Triple Seven, uh, the Malaysian. They've never found the aeroplane, but they found a bit of it, which suggests yeah. 
That's the aliens. They just leave a little piece behind, you know? Yeah, it's just the crumbs that they... Um... Yeah, yeah, the little crumbs they leave for you. But yeah. uh, there was also another famous case. I think it was the first Atlantic flight. It was... Oh, God. It came took off in France. It was white. The whole aircraft was white. And it, it disappeared over Newfoundland, over, they believe. Uh, and they, they never just found the, it. This was this was uh, mentioned actually in um, oh, the Ghost of Flight, uh, not the Ghost of Flight Four Hundred One, the Airman Who Wouldn't Die, um, where the, the he'd set off um, in order to fly the Atlantic yep. west, east west, um, mm. but his hand had been forced by another pilot who took off twenty four hours before him. Yes, uh, in yes, white, that's it. White. Yep, both both of them disappeared. Um, neither of them made it, but the second one, Captain Irwin, apparently got in touch through uh, Eileen Garrett and Harry Price in a seance um, just before and then passed them to the crew of the R1, R101 airship. So that's the one that was the pilot? No, uh, they were. There was, there was, there were two flights. Uh, right, right. Um, uh, Irwin, neither, neither of them made it. Um, and the one you're referring to that was that was reportedly seen over Newfoundland, mm-hmm. but probably wasn't, um, had taken off ahead of Irwin and had forced Irwin's hand because Irwin had realized that the weather wasn't great and he, he was going to sit, sit tight and wait a little while longer. But then this other, I think it was a French guy, took off. It was French, off. yeah. It took off from yeah. France. Uh, and he didn't make it either. So they both they both ended up well. All three of them ended up dead because Irwin took a passenger with him. Yes, who was the daughter of a, a newspaper magnate uh, who had forbidden his daughter to go anywhere near the uh, aeroplane or uh, have anything to do with flying or flying the Atlantic. But she managed to persuade him, uh, Captain Irwin, to go along, which yeah. uh, I should did. Didn't go down well. Well, it might have gone down very well. Uh, <laughs> his his plane apparently um, wreckage of it was found near near the Azores. Yes, it was called uh, the uh, Lusol Blanc, which means the white bird. No, that was the other one. That was the French guys. Yes, that was. Uh, yeah, Captain Irwin was on the second plot, the second one that crashed. <laughs> And uh, they, they, he, he came through during a seance with Harry Price and Eileen Garrett. He was on the second one. He was on the second one. The French one went first in the White Bird, and then while he was in the air, um, Captain Irwin and the, the, his, his um, female passenger took off to try and beat him across by taking a faster route. And they didn't make it either. That was in 1927. It was yeah. the first story non- of that is actually it, it's a it's a fantastic ghost story, and uh, it's one of the great accounts that, that, that points strongly towards spiritualism and survival of death. Sorry, not towards spiritualism, but uh, towards survival of death. Because after Erwin, what had happened was um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died a little while before of uh, normal causes. And a newspaper uh, journalist had employed 
Like they've gone to Harry Price and said to Harry, um, look, can we get hold of Sir Arthur? Um, do you know any good mediums? So Price uh, and the journalist went along to Eileen Garrett. And during the, the seance, they could, they, she, was, she wasn't convinced they got Conan Doyle. Um, but then this other, this Captain Irwin broke through and started to give information about his crash and then started to give out information about the R101 crash, which had quite recently happened. Um, and had brought, then brought forward, Captain Irwin brought forward the spirits of the aviators, uh, the, the crew, some of the crew of the R101 airship, who gave information that really ought to have been, well, it was considered to be secret, not, you know, not for in the public domain, as indeed right. it was. It was, was marked top secret. The R101 was a British military airship. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the question is, how did Garrett get the information? Because nobody... Uh, you know, nobody told her, um, and she was getting this information supposedly from the dead crew of the airship, and um, she shouldn't have known the information by any ordinary means. And Price, realising the implications of what was taking place, contacted the the government, the Ministry of Defence, the Air Ministry, as it was then, and their experts. Because what Price was interested in is saying, look, here we have some, this might, because at the time the inquest into the crash of the R101, which happened at Beauvais in France, uh, was ongoing. And Price realized that Garrett's testimony um, might be fantastical, but might also be relevant. And so he sort of quietly approached the uh, ministry and said, uh, we might be able to, you know, we have the testament of what might be the crew of the airship. And, of course, publicly they were snubbed, but privately they were listened to. The information so was never – the information, of course, was never used in um, the inquest. Yeah. It could never have been. You, you can't have a government inquest saying, well, we spoke to this psychic lady, and she said that – the pilot said that the gas bags were leaking and we were too low. So anyways, going back to my own, it, this, uh, this was part of the Ortega Prize, uh, which included virtually who's who's of early aviation, include Rene Falk, who was a celebrated fighter pilot who had uh, been the Allies' ace of aces during World War One. Richard E. Byrd, of course, you know who that was. He, he won his mm-hmm. uh, Medal of Honor. Oh, there you go for What's that? I know who Rene Falk was as well. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Admiral Burfa flying over the thing. Uh, but this guy was quite the character. Uh, he, uh, Lousseau Blanc, uh, he, was, uh, he was actually kind of a, a swashbuckler. He, uh, he did stints as a gaucho. He did gaucho as a gaucho in uh, Argentina, was a stunt pilot in Hollywood. Uh, he, he had uh, achieved several endurance flying records over the Mediterranean. And uh, both the men were uh, French pilots during World War One, and uh, Colley, uh, that was that was his co-pilot, uh, wore an eye patch as a result of a crash that left him 
partially blind. And Nugusir, whatever the heck is his name, survived 17 war wounds and endured as many surgeries. <laughs> so anyways, uh, they, they painted the plane white, which was called the White Bird. And they painted a black heart with skulls and crossbones because that was his lucky emblem from uh, World War One. And uh, on early on May 8th, 1927, the two of them climbed in and took off uh, for uh, the thing. Now, the interesting thing, they disappeared, but uh, here we go. Uh, yeah. It, the interesting thing about it was in, there have been several reports of witnesses in Maine and Newfoundland who have claimed to have either seen or heard the plane buzz overhead in May 1927. So he may have been the first to cross because uh, they they reported it was a white plane. I mean, those were not really common at that time. So it's kind of neat. It's interesting things. They even they hit the, the – uh, one of the, the theories, you know, we always have the conspiracy theories. Yeah, the conspiracy theory here was that uh, it was shot down by the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard uh, because it, they believed it was a Prohibition-era rum runner. Well, now, that's actually how similar to that is TWA-800. Um, again, you know, this idea that it was shot down by the U.S. Navy uh, off um, Cape Cod. Really? Martha's Vineyard. Do you remember TW800 went out, took off, flew away, and then there was lots of people who uh, reported seeing it plummeting into. Uh, oh yes, 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 yeah. They saw a missile. Actually, you know, who was part of that said, was yeah, Schlesinger, uh, not Schlesinger, Seliger, uh, the brother-in-law of uh, Kennedy's. Uh-huh. Said he was one of those that was yeah, it was shot down thing. And um, they subsequently discovered what the problem was, but uh, the, 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 the conspiracies persisted that it was actually a veiled U.S. missile test that yep. had shot the uh, Flight 800 down. We do love a good conspiracy. It, I, can't, why can't we just accept the truth that, you know, sometimes it's just mundane or sometimes it's just, you know, like, People say, oh, we couldn't have built the pyramids without alien help. Or, well, why not? Because, any, any, you know, we could put rocks on top of one another. You know, the people in the Stone Age, the people in ancient Egypt, the people who built the pyramids or who built Stonehenge or who built the great cathedrals around Europe were pretty much the same as us. You know, they had the same level of intellect and understanding. And, you know... We could, you know, they could figure stuff out. Yeah. So why do we get so surprised that we, you know, that just because it was a long time ago that they figured it out? Mm-hmm. Surely, you know, it's it's a testimony to man's abilities and inventiveness and creativeness, which gave us rise right, to right, the 1960s, of course. Oh, bummer. But, but Obama, yeah. he never did anything useful. Um, <laughs> um we we just we're just good at stuff, but now now people want to think that we're not good at stuff, and we all should hug one another and pull down statues and destroy our history. And yeah, that's one of the big things is, is the uh, yeah the the Apollo flight because now you you got to realize the the computer back then was and we brought this up so many times that you know oh, yeah. it was there was more 
computing and a watch than we'd have, and uh, yeah. they did. But you saw that room with like uh, you know a hundred people there, engineers, and all sitting yeah. there and and slide rule. Slide rule. Can you imagine that? You know how to use a slide no, rule? slide rule. I don't have to imagine because right through right through uh, school, uh, right up till I was in my twenties. Um, I could operate, use, and op- did operate u- uh, regularly use a slide rule. Yeah, me too. I know how they work. I do too. And yeah. you give a you give a modern kid a slide rule. Watch them. Watch the face. Say, what the hell it is would this? Take them a hundred. It would take them a hundred years to figure it out. Yeah. I actually had a cool little thing. It was like a slide rule. Log tables. It, it was a uh, uh, metric converter, which was kind of cool. Uh, it worked so, in the same principle as a slide rule. You picked out your English measure on one side and, and the other end of the uh, the uh, cursor gave you the, the metric equivalent. And it was a neat little thing because we were supposed to go uh, in the, here in the States uh, all metric by 1999. So, yeah, uh, they keep threatening. Yeah, they, keep, they, keep, they keep trying to enforce that on us. All right. Um, we got to go. So, I think not. State, but we're going State, now. Yep. Stay tuned for uh, the second half of uh, Ghost Chronicles Radio with uh, Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with, with Valor no she's here Valor Ventura and uh, you know she's got all that weird stuff Book of Bazaar and the Weird Bazaar so anyways uh, we'll be back next week good night God bless God bless to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.